Chapter 5, Part 3, from the sermon series, The Gospel of John, spoken by Pastor Peter on. We started Chapter 5 three Sundays ago, uh, no, actually four Sundays ago. And in the beginning of Chapter 5, if I can just give you a refresher, Jesus heals a paralytic man who has been paralyzed for over three decades. He heals this man, and when he does this, it was literally an act of God. And what happens is that as the Pharisees and these religious leaders witness this, rather than praising Jesus and honoring him, what do they do? They indict him, they accuse him of committing a sin because he performed this miracle on the Sabbath. And that was a big problem. So Jesus was on trial, like an unofficial trial. And so Jesus is responding. In the first section, we hear of the accusation. The second section that we looked at a couple weeks ago was Jesus sort of testifying in who he is before God, how the Father sees him, his direct relationship with the Father. And today we're going to finish this off. And Jesus, now he's on trial. But what he does is he flips the table and he's now prosecuting these religious leaders. He's indicting them. He's accusing them now. And you know what he's accusing them of? That they've gotten to a place in their lives where they have perverted their faith. That they've deeply perverted their faith. And Jesus goes into this, and he goes into it with quite detail. And one of the things I want you to realize is that we all have a natural tendency to pervert our faith. We all have a natural tendency to do that. What is perverted faith? I thought about it this week, and I came up with this definition. I think it, it sums up well in this passage. Perverted faith is defined as when a Christian has lost the love of God in his or her heart, but still remains consistently and sometimes vigorously religious. Mm. All right? A perverted faith is when a Christian has lost the love of God in his or her heart, but still remains consistently and sometimes vigorously religious. You see, these religious leaders, that's what happened. They didn't have the love of God in their hearts. In fact, Jesus will accuse them of that. But yet they were still vigorously religious. They upheld the law. They enforced it. They put the Son of God on trial because they felt that he committed a sin rather than being in awe of the the amazing miracle in which he performed. And every single one of us in this room, if we're not careful, we can do this church thing without Jesus' love in our hearts. And I think all of us have been there before. Right? Why are you here? Some of you come every Sunday. It's great. Thank thank you for being here every Sunday. I'm really thankful. But do you come here without the love of God residing in your heart? Because if that happens for a long period of time, you know what happens? You've perverted your faith. Do you just come here maybe to hang out with some people and get to know some folks? I mean, that's good to find community. We're always embracing and teaching that. But do you do that without the love of God in your heart? It's a very dangerous place to be. We will pervert our faith when we do it. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about how do we sort of unpervert our faith? How do we set ourselves free from living a perverted faith where we just stay consistently religious or sometimes vigorously religious, while the love of God has evaded our hearts. How do we free ourselves from that? Turn with me to John chapter 5. We're going to finish up this passage today. John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. Now, just when, you're, when you stand trial, in order for a testimony to stand, there always needs to be two witnesses. So I want you to sort of realize that as Jesus is talking about this, right? Because it doesn't matter what Jesus says when you're on trial. Somebody else has to actually prove what Jesus is claiming who he is, all right? And this is what Jesus says what he says here in verse 31. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. 
But if someone else is also testifying about me, I assure you that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you sent investigators to listen to John the Baptist, and his testimony about me was true. Of course I have no need of human witnesses, but I say these things so you might be saved. John was like a burning and shining lamp, and you were excited for a while about his message. But I have greater witness than John, my teachings and my miracles. The Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they proved that he sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified about me. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face, and you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe me, the one he sent to you. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures points to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Your approval means nothing to me because I know that you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you in my Father's name, and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe. For you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. Yet it isn't I who will accuse you before the Father. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you put your hopes. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Lord, this is really harsh. Lord, you responded so powerfully to these religious leaders for a reason. Because you don't want us to do this faith thing without your love being present in our hearts. It can get so perverted. And some of us might have walked here today where your love has evaded our hearts for maybe a while. And we're just kind of going through the motions. We're being consistent with our religiosity. But God, it's been a while since we've actually encountered your presence and your love. And so God, I pray that today you would open our ears, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. And I pray that we would have a fresh encounter with you, God, that would lead us into a place, Lord, where we really do nurture this love relationship that you have blessed us and gifted us with. And so, God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, I pray, God, that it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And it's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. How do you know if you've perverted your faith? That's a good question to ask. How do you know if you've kind of gotten to this place where you've perverted your faith? It's when you put Jesus on trial. It's when you begin to accuse Jesus. Now, the word Satan, the root word of Satan actually means the one who accuses all right? And so when you and I get to a place where we begin to start accusing God, we start to accuse Jesus Christ, we are running the risk of really perverting our faith. It's one of the signs where you know that God's love isn't in your heart. In many ways, you're questioning him. And I want you to know something. No matter what God does in your life from this point on, he doesn't have to do anything else to prove his love for you. He's already done enough to prove how much he loves you. Amen? Amen. He has. We celebrated this on Easter a couple of weeks ago. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God makes a huge thundering statement that if he didn't love you, he would have never said to Jesus in heaven, go down to, go down to earth and die for the people that I love. God wouldn't have done that if he didn't love you. Jesus didn't just do it because he wants to obey the Father. Of course he obeys the Father. But he did it because Jesus also loves you. So Jesus and God doesn't have to do anything to prove their love for you. But yet we continue to indict him, don't we? Because so many times our faith can get to a place where it's all about, God, what have you done for me lately? And we end up accusing him of certain things. There's nothing wrong with doubting God. 
I mean, because that's, that's a real honest place where you come. You come with a posture of saying, God, I'm struggling right now to believe you. I'm struggling to know that you're a God of love. I mean, we read that in the Psalms a lot where that happens. But for so many times, we, we enter into this relationship with God, and we just focus on our present circumstances. And we can't take a step back and see the totality of our life and come to the conclusion that our God is truly faithful, that you wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the faithful hand of God. Amen? Many, many years ago, at the beginning of this church, I had to fire a staff member that I did not want to fire. It's, not the, it's the worst part of my job. This was very difficult. This was a person I was very close with. Their personal life was really kind of falling apart. As a result of that, they were becoming a, a major liability in the ministry in which we actually paid this person to lead. I held off as long as I could because I didn't want to because this person was a friend of mine and I knew how hard this was going to be for me, but I also knew how hard it was going to be for this person. And I remember when he was in my office and I sat with him and in tears, I had to let him go. He looked at me with anger and he said to me, he said, Peter, you only loved me when I helped you grow your church. But when I didn't grow your church, you never showed me any love or any kindness. Wow. I was so hurt by that. I couldn't believe he uttered those words and that those words would even come out of his mouth. He forgot all those days where he would call me and share how hard his life was. He forgot all those times, you know, I go to bed early. Well, I stood up late at night counseling him and his wife. He forgot all those nights. He's forgot all those days that even before they got married, I had to meet with them for weeks upon weeks to try to discern if this is really the right path for them. Because they didn't get along at times. He forgot all those moments. He even forgot the moment when I used my credit card points so that he can book a vacation for him and his wife. He forgot about all those things because he focused too much in the here and now. It was really about, Peter, what have you done for me lately? And how many times do we do that with God? How many times because we're going through maybe a hard time, we say, God, why am I still single? I pray all the time. Why am I not married by now? God, how come you can't give me a job while I'm actually really satisfied with? Like, what's going on here, God? God, how come you're not blessing me with some level of wealth? When I'm faithful, I come to church, I pray, I tithe. What's going on here, God? My friends are accelerating in their wealth, but what about me? Right? God, why am I living this kind of life? We tend to do that, and we don't take a step back and really see how faithful God has been. And it's because of God's faithfulness that sometimes, sometimes, he wants you and I to go through a present circumstance that doesn't make sense. It's really difficult for us to discern. But if we can stay faithful to him and not pervert our faith, you'll be able to see God's love in a new and fresh ways with new eyes that he wants you to see. That God's love for you runs so much deeper than him just answering your prayer request like a vending machine of blessings. That his love for you is so much deeper than that. If you just hang on and go and take a look back at how faithful he's been from the moment you took your first, first breath into this world to the moment where you are today. As hard as it might be. I'm so grateful that that staff member called me a few days later and he said to me, he said, I'm so sorry that I said that. Please forgive me. And you and I have to realize that we get like this with God all the time. We put him on trial. We put Jesus on trial. Again, perverted faith is when Christ has lost, when you've lost the love of God in your heart, but you still remain consistently, but sometimes vigorously religious. Now, when you hear stories of pastors falling, you hear it all the time. The media loves to cover pastors falling. They're obsessed with it, and I get it. I'm incredibly empathetic to it because I'm a pastor. 
But you hear pastors falling because of moral failure, right? They commit adultery. You hear that a lot. You hear pastors uh, in the news saying that they've embezzled church funds. That's really sad. It's wrong. I get it. You hear stories on the news about pastors abusing their power in the church and how they hurt staff members and other people and things like that. I mean, there was a whole 10 weeks, a 10-part series on a church in Seattle where a pastor, and they did a deep analysis of his life and how abusive he was. 10 weeks was one of the most popular podcasts amongst the American Christian church. We love covering stuff like that. And those leaders, those pastors, they're not evil people. I don't want to believe that they are. But they've just did this Christianity thing without God's love in their heart. And if it's so easy for clergy to do that, how much easier is it for you and me? I want to encourage you that some of you are here today, you don't even know it, but your faith is so perverted. You've been doing this Christianity thing without God for so long. And I wonder why. Why do we continue to move forward? Because then, like, like these religious leaders, you'll see God's hand working at something. And rather than praising Jesus for doing this miracle, we're going to indict somebody for sinning. Because the faith that we once had that was so pure and rich and real has gotten so demented, perverted, and it reeks. And that's what Jesus was saying here to these religious leaders. So how do we free ourselves from perverted faith? How do you and I free ourselves from perverted faith? The first thing is this. you got to encounter Jesus in the Bible. You have to encounter Jesus in the Bible. Look at what it says in verse 39 to 40. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to refuse to receive this life. You see, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, they were experts in the Bible. They knew the Old Testament. They were scholars. They would teach and pontificate upon this to a lot of the people. And people would revere them for how much they knew in terms of the Old Testament. They knew all of it. And Jesus says, this, it doesn't matter how much you know about the word of God. Because if you don't encounter me, you've perverted your faith. You see, the purpose, why do you read God's word? Why do you read God's word? Ask yourself that question. Do you read it? Because maybe it's your Christian duty. You grew up in a church being taught. You have to read the Bible. Otherwise, you're not a good Christian. And you do it out of a sense of duty. I totally get it, man. I grew up in the same tradition. But if the only reason why you're reading the Bible is because you do it out of a sense of duty, you've lost God's love in your heart. Do you read the Bible maybe because you're a leader in this church, you're leading a Bible study group, and so you got to sort of stay up to date in the Word. you got to know what you're talking about. And so you're reading the Bible because of that? That's kind of perverted too. Are you reading the Bible? And I laugh about this one because I've done this so many times. Are you reading the Bible because you're bartering with God? You're saying, God, listen, I'm going to read the Bible like every single day for the next 90 days but please answer this prayer request of mine. And so you think like your spiritual output is going to lead to an answer prayer. You're bartering with God. That's perverted. There's a perversion. The love of God has left your heart. Why should you and I read the Bible? So you can meet Jesus. That's it. That's why you should read the Bible. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know everything. You guys can pontificate the scriptures. But you know what? Everything that you have read points to me. 
So whenever you open the word, there is an encounter that you and I can encounter of God. And here's the sad thing that I see with so many Christians today. Do you know that there are so many of Christians today, and a lot of you perhaps, you're living off the spiritualities of other people? Do you know that? You're reading all these Christian books. You're, re- you're listening to different sermons all the time. And I'm not saying those things are bad. They should be supplementary to your faith in God. But if that's the only way you encounter God, then you're living off the spiritualities of other people. When was the last time you encountered Jesus through the scriptures? Because Jesus wants you to encounter him through the Bible. This is not a guilt trip. Please, please don't take it as that. But we have to put ourselves in a position. I'm telling you right now, it's been so hard for me to put myself in a place where I can hear from God and I can encounter Jesus in the Bible. I wish I could tell you it was so easy. I wish I could tell you that after seminary, after taking Greek and Hebrew, like I'm like every time I open the Bible, like it sings to me. <laughs> it doesn't sing to me. Do you know how hard I've had to work? Do you know how much discipline it required for me to read the Bible and encounter God in some capacity? It doesn't happen every single day, but it does happen regularly for me. And I'm so grateful for that. There was a time when I used to preach on Sundays, like in the beginning days, I couldn't preach a sermon unless I read a commentary. I'm not saying that's bad. But now I don't do that. I first like really search, like, God, you got to speak to me through this text because I cannot preach this to the people unless you speak to me. And then after I come up with my outline, then maybe I'll look at a commentary to make sure it's not heretical. But I always have David Hosank to tell me if it is. <laughs> he and I have fought many times in sermon practice, and he's telling me it's not biblical what you're saying. And I'm like, well, are you kidding me? And so sometimes we fight, and he, usually, he always wins. I, I always lose. But how do, you, how, do you, how do you hear from God? How do you encounter Jesus in the scriptures? Let me, let me share with you three things that have really changed my life. And these are like the training wheels that you put on your bike to kind of learn how to ride the bike first. But after a while, you're going to be able to like take it off and you're going to be able to just ride. It's going to be so easy. It's going to be much easier for you, right? The first thing is this. You got to ask yourself three questions. The first thing is this. Not three. One, well, the first one is this. You just pray that Jesus would speak to you. Before you read... Do you pray and say, Jesus, would you please speak to me through this text today? you got to pray. If you don't pray before you read, he ain't going to speak to you. That's number one. That's basic. Second thing is this. As you read the passage, you got to ask yourself, Jesus, what am I learning about you in this passage? What do I learn about you? What do I learn about God in this passage? And then after you're done with that, then you, the last question you ask yourself is this. You say, what do you want me to do now? What is it that you want me to do? That's a, these three questions are like the beginning. It's like building your muscle to really hear from God and encounter Jesus. Jesus wants you to encounter him through the scriptures. He does. But we got to put ourselves in a place where we can't. Because if we don't do that, if we don't encounter Jesus in the Bible, you're going to have a perverted faith. Because when you hear from God, when you encounter God's presence through the scripture, there is this deep I can't really explain. I don't want to just say it's emotional, but you get to connect with God at a very deep, intimate level. And it's powerful. And I'm telling you right now, some of you, you want God to speak to you like Mount Sinai. You want like the ground to shake. You want heaven to open. And you're like, God, speak to me. Like that's rarely ever happened to me. Can I just encourage you that if that's the way you want God to speak to you, you're not pursuing God to encounter him. You're using him like a drug. 
to overcompensate for your lack of emotional health. You don't have to have those cosmic shakes and all the crazy things happen to you in order to hear from God. God can just speak to you as you open up the scripture. You can encounter him by saying, Lord, speak to me as I read before I read this. And as you read it, just say, God, what am I learning about you in this passage? What do you want me to do now? That's the beginning process of how you can begin to hear and encounter Jesus in the scriptures so that you don't have to live off the spiritualities of other people. It's your faith. God's speaking to you, not Peter on, not C.S. Lewis, right? Not other authors or Tim Keller, but it's God. It's a whole different ballgame. So, um, so when you're reading the New Testament challenge, I want you to do this, all right? We're in Matthew right now. It's great. It's a great. We're in the Gospels. Before you read that chapter, just say, Jesus, please speak to me before I read this chapter. And then... Ask yourself, what do I learn about you, Jesus, as I read this chapter? And I say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And he'll speak to you. Amen. So here's what I do. I, so I'm, I'm a New Testament challenge, and I absolutely love it. I, I love doing this with you. I do one chapter a day with you as well. Uh, but, but before I read the New Testament, uh, I always read a psalm. That's my rhythm. I read one chapter in the psalm. And last week, I read Psalm 62.1. Psalm 62.1. Here's what it said. I wait quietly before God, for my victory comes from him. Right? I started with that, and it's just verse 1. And I want you to know, this is how I read the Bible. For some reason, that really spoke to my heart. So what I do is I stop reading, ver I don't read verse 2. I stay there until I get what God wants me to get. And so I probably read this in total about 10 times, over and over again, spending time in silence saying, God, what are you speaking to me about? All right? And so what happened last week was is that um, my son Christian is a junior in high school. And he wants to be a college baseball player. That's his hope. He loves baseball. So he wants it. He's training really hard. That's a picture of him. He was in the newspaper a couple weeks ago. And that's the picture they took. And I guess they gave him the picture because they took that picture of him. But anyway, but he's working really hard. He gets up at 4.30 in the morning. He goes to the gym to weight train to get stronger. And then he showers and then he goes to school. That's kind of his rhythm. I never told him to do that. He just wanted to do it. I'm like, that's crazy that you would do that. That early in the morning. But he does. Because he knows how important junior year is. This is the year that hopefully he can potentially get recruited to play in a school. That's the hope, right? He start, he's starting off real slow this year. Season just started about three weeks ago. And last week, I remember, like, he had a real bad day at the plate. He struck out twice. And, like, once he just struck out. It was, like, right down the middle. And he just... So we got in the car. And I... Gave him about a 30-minute lecture of what he needed to do differently going forward. And it's the same 30-minute lecture I give him every time he doesn't do well at the plate. So it's like a broken record. And this kid is so sweet. He never says, Dad, stop. I, you tell me this every time. But I was so frustrated, so frustrated. I was just telling him over and over and over again. He said, you got to do better, man. Come on, you can do better and stuff. And I'm trying to tell him what he needs to do and how he needs to approach his at-bats and stuff like that. And he just stays quiet the whole time. And I know he's not listening to me, right? <laughs> but I'm getting so worked up because of it. And then I read this verse. I wait quietly before God for my victory comes from him. I said, God, what do you want me to get from this? Why is this tugging at my heart? Because God showed me how unhealthy I can be at times when I get so worked up about his baseball. And he said, will you just be quiet? Don't say anything. 
Just surrender it to me. And you'll see victory if you do that. I, want, I wish I could tell you, like, I was perfect this week. I wasn't. I gave him, like, a 10-minute lecture instead of a 30-minute <laughs> lecture. I'm trying. It's marginal, right? I'm growing a little bit into this. I'm working real hard. But I'm trying to, like, the thing I'm doing differently is I'm trying to be more positive than negative after a bad day. And I wish I could tell you, like, all of a sudden, because I'm quiet, he's, like, amazing. He's marginally better. Marginally. But this is really about how God wants to transform my heart. And if I really love him, I have to sort of do my best to kind of follow in the footsteps in which he's calling me to go. And that's it. And I'm just grateful for it because at the end of the day, it's not about where he plays or what he does, like in terms of baseball. At the end of the day, you know what it's about? That he and I still have a loving relationship with each other. That's all that matters. And if baseball gets in the way of that, then I'm pretty messed up. Because he's not going to mess that up. I'm going to mess up because I'm his father, right? And so God is teaching me, but you got to be able to encounter him through this. Because when you encounter him, I'm telling you, it can be so specific even as that, or sometimes it can be a bit more general. You just never know. But you and I can encounter Jesus in the Bible. Jesus is saying the scriptures point to me. So come to me. Be open and hear what I have to say. All right? Hear what I have to say. So encounter Jesus in the Bible. When we start to do that, we'll start to unpervert our faith. We'll start to pursue God with the love of God in our hearts. That becomes a beautiful thing. The last thing, in order to free ourselves from a perverted faith, is when we live our life to honor Jesus Christ. When you live your life to honor Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 41 of 44. Jesus says, your approval means nothing to me because I know that you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you in my Father's name and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. The one that you can't believe. For you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. God cares about you honoring him. If you believe in him and you declare Jesus Christ to be your God, he cares about you honoring him. He does care about that. He's not going to be like, no, don't worry about it. No, he cares about honor because there's something beautiful that happens when we can begin to honor God. And what the religious leaders were doing was that they weren't honoring Jesus. They would love, they love to honor one another. They enjoyed doing that. But they would never honor Jesus, even though they saw Jesus do these godly miracles, these miracles that nobody else could do. And so I think naturally, we do have a tendency to honor. I think God created us with this desire to want to honor him, and sometimes we take that energy and we place it onto somebody else, right? Sometimes we honor what? We can honor our parents more. Sometimes we can honor our kids sometimes more than we do honoring God. Sometimes we can honor our bosses. Sometimes we can honor our friends, our family, different things like that. Celebrities, sports athletes, sometimes we can honor people like that. And Jesus is saying that you and I have to live our lives to primarily honor him. That's the goal. But a lot of us, we, while we may not honor other people, the majority of us live our lives to be honored by others. And that was the issue with what Jesus had with these religious leaders. It wasn't that they were honoring other people, but they saw Jesus as a threat to their honor. They didn't have the kind of powers that Jesus had. They didn't have the kind of authority that Jesus had to heal people. And so as a result of it, what did they want to do? They didn't just dishonor him. They want to kill him now. Because they were dishonoring him. When Jesus healed people, they took that as a dishonor. 
because they couldn't do it. And that's what they had an issue with. It wasn't because he healed on the Sabbath. It was because they were losing honor because everyone was beginning to honor Jesus for the miracles in which he was doing. It's so easy to want to be honored. I get it, right? Because God forbid somebody disrespects us and different things like that, and I get it. So how do we honor God? What's the best way in how you and I can honor him today? How do we hold him in high esteem and great respect? It's really by obeying him, obeying Jesus. When you and I obey Jesus, guess what happens? We honor him. Obedience to someone simply means that there is a place of honor that you hold him in, and as a result of that, it warrants your obedience. So as a kid, when you grew up in your parents' home, you had to obey them. Now, some of you didn't have to, I get it, but a lot of us, we did, especially like if you grew up in old school homes, all right, especially immigrant homes. You had to honor your parents, right? There was that honor, and how did you honor? You obey. If you didn't obey, there were repercussions if you didn't obey your parents in those ways, right? And so there is that obedience. Obedience means you're surrendering yourself. When you and I obey and we choose to obey God, we are surrendering ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. You and I are surrendering ourselves to our king. Now, this is really hard for us to imagine because we live in a democracy, right? So we don't understand this because we elect the presidents, right? In a monarchy, it's very different. If you live in a monarchy and you come from a monarchy country, it's very different. If you don't obey the king, there is real deep, deep penalties for you not obeying the king. You know how I know that? I was in Thailand many years ago visiting Scott Kwok, our missionary, all right? We were watching Mission Impossible just at the theaters. We're sitting down, but before the movie starts, the picture of the king comes up on the screen in Thailand. And then there's this anthem music that comes on. And you, everyone has to stand up. So I'm just sitting there reclining in my chair. And Scott goes, you got to get up. I'm like, why? He goes, we got to pay respects to the king. I was like, the king is not here. We don't have to do this. Plus, I'm an American. And he goes, Peter, if they catch you not standing up and saluting the king, you can get in trouble. And so I stood right up. I got scared. I'm like, whoa. Like, he was being so serious with me that if you don't rise and pay your respects to the king, there could be repercussions for you, even though you're an American. See, that's a monarchy. That's, what we, that's the kingdom in which you and I live in. Our God is, our Jesus Christ is our king. What makes this king so special is that he came and died for you on the cross and resurrected from the dead. But he expects you to obey him, and he would love for you to do so. Here's a prayer that I pray every single day. If you read my journal, it's boring because there's the last I ended with this prayer. Holy Spirit, allow me to experience pure joy and peace by obeying the commandments of my Father. I pray that every day. That would you help me to experience true joy and peace by obeying the commandments of the Father. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to sin. Of course you're going to sin. We all sin. But it means that we're going to actually do something about it, that we're going to confess it, that we're not going to just let sin become a secret in our life. When your sinful life or your sinful nature starts to be very secretive, it's a very dangerous place. We can start to pervert our faith in a deep way. And we definitely dishonor Jesus in the process. You know, I've learned that uh, we got to stop giving the devil too much credit because we got to learn to take responsible for our own sins. We've got to stop saying, well, he tempted me to do this. I'm not saying that the devil doesn't tempt us. Of course he tempts us. But you've got to take ownership of your own sinful nature. 
Because you have a spiritual nature, the spirit lives inside of you, which is beautiful. But you also have a sinful nature. And you got to allow yourself to get to a place where you will be incredibly committed to being disloyal to your sinful nature. Because for so many of us, we are so loyal and obedient to our sinful nature. And the best way that I've learned over the years and how you can be disloyal to your sinful nature is to make sure you invite some brothers, if you're a guy, some brothers in Christ, and let them be a part of your dark little world so they can help you because iron sharpens iron. When two are gathered in his name, he'll be there. They'll help you to grow so that you can overcome, so that your sinful nature will not cause you to lose the people that you love the most. That's the most important thing. So will you rage war on your sinful nature? Will you? Will you begin to maybe confess those things? I've, I've seen this. I've been here for 20 years almost, right? And I've seen this trend that the longer we start to live a disobedient life and we start to live a very secretive, sinful lifestyle, I've seen this happen even with pastors. It's only a matter of time before you just kind of walk away from your faith in God because your faith has been so perverted. The love of God has left your heart. And if you really care about the love of God residing in your heart, then be open to confessing what you're struggling with today. Will you confess that you're an adulterer? Will you with somebody? Will you confess of being jealous, that you're just always jealous? You're jealous of people who are in this church, but what they have or what they may not have. Will you confess that you're a gossiper, that you, that you actually enjoy gossiping? Right? Will you confess that? Will you confess that you are constantly, constantly living in bitterness? Will you confess that? Will you confess of putting so much pressure on your kids because you want to live vicariously through them? Right? Will you confess to having premarital sex? Will you confess to being a racist? Will you confess to being a sexist? Will you confess to being selfish? Will you confess to being greedy? Will you confess that many times you share God's truth with zero compassion? Because you hurt people more than you actually help build them up. Will you confess those things? Our sinful nature. Let's be so good at being disobedient to it, but we cannot be disobedient to our sinful nature if you're not going to confess it. Our goal is to obey Jesus Christ. We can't do that when our sinful nature warrants our attention all the time and it warrants our obedience. And so I hope that you will live your life to honor Jesus Christ, that you'll do so in such a way where you'll honor him by obeying him and that you would rage war on your sinful nature so that you can learn to be incredibly disobedient to it. Invite some people into your world. Confess those things. Don't try to do this Christianity thing on your own. It is too hard. It's taking out the greatest leaders of our day as well. And it can take you out too. Let's not pervert our faith anymore. Let's encounter Jesus in the Bible and let's live our lives to honor him. Now, some of you know this. Uh, you know that for the past three years, I started a doctoral program. And it was on global leadership. And... Um, uh, for the first year, I took all these classes, and they were so good. They were so life transformational for me. I absolutely loved it. But the last two years, I had to write my dissertation. And I'm telling you guys, it was brutal. Like, I'm not exaggerating here, but I hated the process. It was so hard. So hard. I remember, like, I finally finished it back in December, early December, and I submitted all of it. 
And like you submit chapter by chapter, and I have a first reader, and they're giving me some feedback and stuff like that, so I'm always revising it. But I handed it all in, right? Chapters one through five, I handed the whole thing in. And I'm thinking, wow, what a relief. It's time to celebrate. Two weeks later, I get an email from the professors, and I get about 100 revisions I have to do. I remember looking at those 100 revisions. I almost wanted to cry. I was like, I want to do this. And they said, you have 30 days to finish this. I think you can do it. But do they know I'm a full-time pastor? How am I going to do it? That's 100 revisions. It's so much. I even told my wife, I was like, I just don't want to do this anymore. But I did. I hustled. I got it all done by the end of January. And I sent it in. And I was so happy. I was like, man, we got to celebrate. We got a party. This is amazing. And you know what happened? Like three days later, they sent me another email with about 50 revisions. And at that point, I'm like, you know what, God? I think I got what I needed to get out of this program. The classes were great. I'm just going to quit. I can't do this anymore. Like, I literally wanted to cry. I didn't know what to do. I met up with my dean. And I was like, I can't do this. It's too much. And he looked at me and he said, finish it. You can do it. Do it. Get it done. What he really was saying, stop being a baby and just get it done. Like, what's wrong with you? You're almost there. You're at the finish line. You just got to do it. And so they wanted me to finish these revisions in 30 days. And so I finished it. Fine. I got it all done. Painfully, I got it done at the end of February. And I submitted because the due date was March 1st because I'm supposed to graduate in early May. So this is it, right? So I submitted and like... PTSD, I'm so scared that they're going to send me another email and say, hey, we got about 25 more revisions for you, right? I send it in, and they finally accept it. They finally accept it. I'm thinking, thank God, thank God, yeah. So last week, I had to go in, and when you write a dissertation, you have to defend it with scholars, and so I had to go in and I had to defend it. And they were asking me questions and all that kind of stuff. And so I had to answer it, do my best and stuff like that. And then after I was done, it took about 40 minutes. And then they told me to leave the room because then they had to deliberate. And the deliberation was simply this. Do we pass them with no conditions? That means I don't have to, re I don't have to edit the document anymore. Or do, I pass, do we pass them with conditions, meaning he's got to re-edit some stuff? Or does he fail? That was the the three things that they had to sort of judge me on. And I came back after that 20-minute recess, and they said, you passed with no conditions. I never have to look at this dang thing ever again. All right? I'm so happy I passed with no conditions. You know what the cool thing was? I mean, I was so happy, man. I celebrated, went to my favorite pizza's place in New York City by myself. I, had, I treated myself to a whole pie of pizza. I don't care. I ate the whole thing. I was so happy. All right? I was so happy. Then I took the bus and I went home. And when I got home, I opened up my email, and I get this email from the, from the university, and they're like, hey, you know, we didn't hear from you last week, but we're asking for your bio and your picture. And they said, congratulations, because you won the Doctorate of Ministry Dissertation Award, and it'll be presented at your graduation. And I'm like, what? Me? All these revisions? So I couldn't believe I even got that award. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but I, I'm graduating on May 4th. And so, like, we'll see what happens. But I'm telling you, there was a, I was this close from quitting. This close. I said, I want to do this. It's too much. Like, God, I know you wanted me to do this. But I don't think, like, here's how you get crazy. I thought, I don't think you really care about a degree. You just wanted me to learn. I've learned enough from this program. I've learned so much. I don't need to learn anymore. I finished. 
because the love of God still remains in my heart. And he said, you got to do this. I know it's hard, but you got to finish it. And you know, like, it's amazing that once you get it, like, I started acting differently in my house. (laughs) Jenny was like, hey, can you do the dishes? I'm like, don't you ever address me as you anymore. (laughs) Dr. Peter, can you do the dishes? She looked at me with those eyes. It's like, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, forgive me. <laughs> my son Christian jokes around. He usually calls me, he addresses me as son when he texts me. I don't know why he calls me son, but he calls me son. But this whole last week, he calls me Doc. Hey, Doc, can I borrow the car today? Can I borrow the car? You know, um, I don't think I'll ever get to a path where I'm going to want people to honor me because now I'm a doctor. I hope I never get there. It'd be sad if I did. It'd be sad if I got to a place where I said to myself, you know what, I don't need to read the Bible anymore, man. I'm a doctor. I don't need to read this thing anymore. I'm okay. I know enough. It would be sad. Because more than me just kind of saying these things, what it proves is that God's love has left me, has left my heart. And some of you come here every Sunday, and God has left your heart. You've pushed them away. And yet you're still consistently religious. Why? Will you welcome them back into your heart? Will you encounter this Jesus who came and died for you on the cross and resurrected from the dead and now sits on his throne as our king? And will you bring honor to him by living your life the best you can by obeying him and encountering him through the scriptures? Because that's what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. So let's stop perverting our faith. And let's start embracing the faith that God wants you to live by obeying and surrendering yourself to his lordship. Let's pray. I'm just going to give you just a few minutes if you can. Go to him. And maybe you have been doing this Christianity thing. Maybe you come here because we have a great kids program. I don't blame you. We do. We have a great kids program, great youth program. I mean, IJ's amazing, right? Steve's amazing. I mean, your kids are well cared for and loved here. But you know the greatest gift you can give to your kids is for them to grow up in a home where they can see mom and dad head over heels for Jesus Christ. And I get it. Life's hard. I get sometimes it can be quite myopic where we just look at our present circumstances. And I know how easy it is sometimes to just kind of let God fade away from our life. But you have an opportunity. Jesus is giving you an opportunity today. He's re-inviting you. He's asking. He's knocking at that door, Jesus says. And he's knocking. Will you open it and welcome him into your heart? And will you live your life in such a way where he'll never leave? That you would encounter him through the scriptures live your life by honoring him, by doing your best to obey him so that your spiritual nature always wins against your sinful nature. I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that, and then I'm going to pray for us. Go to God in prayer.
I thank you that you see us. You see us. That you don't ignore us, but you won't force your way into our lives because you want there to be a desire for your presence. Thank you for that freedom that you give to us. God, help us never to abuse that freedom. Help us to cherish that freedom by walking faithfully with you every single day of our lives. Forgive us, God, because sometimes our sinful nature takes over. And we kind of live a life where we say, God, what have you done for me lately? And we forget what you've really done for us. That you died for us on the cross and resurrected from the dead. God, I pray for the vibrancy of faith for every person in this room, in this room. Every person watching online. Every person who is in the nursery. I pray that you would revive, resurrect their faith now. Now. Not tomorrow, but now. And God, that your love would just go into their hearts right now. And God, that you would claim full authority over their hearts and their lives. And God, that there would be a holy surrender, a literal kneeling down, bowing down to their king and saying, I will honor you I will read the scriptures and encounter you to the best I can to the day I die. No matter what accolades I get, no matter what degrees I have hanging up on my wall, no matter what unfortunate circumstance happens in my life, I will always walk faithfully with you. And so God, remove the dross. Remove this layer of secularity that evades our lives every day and show us that we are your holy people. We are royal priesthood. And help us to live like that. So the last thing we want to be is like these religious leaders. To go through the motions of faith miss miracles right before our eyes. Help us to see the miracles that you have for us. And so, Lord, I pray that as my brothers and sisters open up the Bible, as they pray that you would speak to them, speak profoundly. And God, help us to obey, to invite somebody into our dark little worlds so that when we do sin, we have some backup to help us to fight the sinful nature so that we don't listen to the lies of Satan and we listen to the truths of Jesus Christ. So it's in your name that we pray.